Okay. So, uh, well, welcome back. Thanks, Sue, for the charts. Um, I'll make some copies of those later. Okay, so tonight what we want to do is sort of do a, a, an overview of a, quite a lengthy period of time. We're going to look at uh, the time of Abraham coming down from Ur the Chaldeans into Canaan. We're going to actually spend some time detailing out his, his routes of travel, because oftentimes we just don't think about that. We just kind of blow through the text and touch on the big stories. But we're going to detail his journeys. Then we're going to look at uh, briefly the journeys of his son and grandson. And uh, then we're going to look at, we're going to fast forward through the captivity in Egypt and look at the some potential routes they may have wandered through the Sinai Peninsula. Then we will look at the conquest of Joshua in the, into the land of Canaan and the routes that he took and some of the successes that he had. And then we will uh, take a look at how the land was divvied up. Now, we just kind of did a real quick overview of that class one, but we'll look at a little bit more carefully at how the land was divvied up. So basically, we're going to start in and around 2100 BC and just kind of work our way forward, um, probably close to seven or 800 years. Um, actually, let me think here, a thousand years. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, g I gave you a handout. There's there's a map on the back, and the map is such that it details the whole area that that has been under discussion. Not every place name is obviously on it because place names over the course of a thousand years come and go. But um, uh, it does give you one map and we'll look at a similar map tonight on our, uh, on our slides. So what I would like to do is give a little bit of a, a, a backdrop to the land of Canaan just before Abraham would have entered into it, and even after the Jews left it. So just a, a few points. We'll just won't spend a lot of time on this, but um, a few things I wanted to share with you. So when you think of Canaan, and I hope as we're teaching this stuff, you're sort of visualizing it and imagining what it might be like, because that's how you're going to learn it. The the history of the world obviously is divided up into several uh, sections according to archaeologists. And I don't know them all, but the period of time within which Abraham entered Canaan was at the tail end of what was known as the Early Bronze Age. So by the time his son and grandson were living in Canaan, uh, that was now into what was called the, the Middle Bronze Age, which was followed by the Late Bronze Age, and then there's Iron Age 1, Iron Age 2, yada, yada, yada. But before the Bronze Age, there were um, other ages, and uh, sometimes they're just simply called uh, the pottery or pre-pottery ages. Not very creative, but it's because there was a period of time when people were making everything out of stone, and then they invented pottery. So they call it the Pottery Age. You'll wonder what they'll call our age. You know, a thousand years from now, if the Lord doesn't come, the electronics age, I don't know. So the pre, in the pre, during the pre-pottery age, which could go back as far as five, six, seven thousand BC, 
people were living in Canaan. And uh, this, of course, was a pre-writing culture, so we have no writing being found. But we have marks on cave walls, you know, uh, basically doodling of different animals they hunted with spears stuck in them or blood running out of their noses. So obviously it was a, a, a culture within which there were nomadic peoples who were hunting and gathering and living in caves and making stone dishes and all that kind of stuff. And uh, many of them that started, uh, during that period of time, during the pre-pottery period, they started to build houses. They wouldn't look like our houses. But one of the unique customs that they had during that time was instead of taking their dead and burying them in a cemetery or burying them out in a field, they would dig up the floors of their houses and they would bury their dead under the floors of their houses. And being that they didn't have pottery, they wouldn't bury them with pottery. That's one of the ways they date different layers of, uh, of soil when they're digging through tells or mounds of civilization. When they come down to that layer where they find houses with skeletal remains buried under the floors, um, there's never pottery buried with them, so it's the pre-pottery era. But what they would do is they would take, uh, they would go to great lengths to try to recreate the face of the deceased. So what probably happened is they would take the body out someplace and they would allow the flesh to rot off of it. And then they would try to rebuild the face with plaster, and they would always put shells into the eyes and decorate the bodies, paint the bodies, and bury them under the floors of their houses. So clearly you have some sort of religious beliefs going on that aren't reflected in Scripture or in the God of the Bible, but you do have a people that are, that are thinking about death and the afterlife and taking, uh, you know, going to great lengths to somehow accommodate... Uh, the dead, just as the Egyptians to the south of them were going to great lengths to bury their dead in uh, through mummification processes and procedures and so forth. Now, coming into the, the pottery age, of course, the, as pottery was developed in Mesopotamia and travelers would come down, people would pick it up and figure out how to make it. And the early uh, pots were just made by hand and then later they figured out spin them on a wheel but during that period of time one of the things that archaeologists have dug up is a lot of uh, statues and figurines and as you've probably seen many times uh, if you've ever seen like any Mesopotamian artifacts they tend to exaggerate the sexual features so if it's the sexual features of a woman uh, you know, they exaggerate the breast, they exaggerate the genitalia, they exaggerate the hips because they were probably worshipping a lot of fertility gods at the time. And fertility was, you know, a big deal for them. Now, this concept of fertility, we know, became a big deal for Abraham and for Isaac and for Jacob and, you know, for their descendants after them. They saw it as a blessing from God, but they worshipped a god the, the different concept was they worshipped a god that they be, believed blessed them with, with fertility, whereas the ancient Canaanites worshipped gods of fertility in the hopes of producing children. Uh, they also were using flint tools at this time. So just like in North America, where they can find flint tools through, uh, that were made by the, the early uh, natives, flint tools were being used in, uh, in Canaan at the time. And based upon the maps that I've shown you, I'll just maybe um, 
I'll just pick this one. We're going to use it for different purposes later on tonight. But uh, just kind of to remind you of some of the stuff we talked about early on, this area is more or less flat. This is called the Plains of Sharon or the Coastal Plains. This area is very mountainous. It kind of drops. There's some passageways up through here that aren't so bad. This is really deep. And then this jumps up into mountainous areas as well. So the topography of the land goes from uh, the, uh, the west to the east, up and down and up and down. And this was a major trade route. And this was a major trade route, either coming up through here or crossing over and going up this way. So this uh, trade route, get the name right, very creative, was called the Way of the Sea. And uh, this trade route was known as the King's Way or the Transjordan Way. So basically, you have Mesopotamia up here, Egypt down here. At different phases, they are very powerful. Other phases, they're not so powerful. But this sort of becomes like Starbucks. It's just a place where people meet. People meet. So the land of Canaan was not really a settled area. It wasn't a nation. It was just a meeting point. So lots of culture going back and forth, back and forth, up and down from Egypt to Mesopotamia, Egypt to Mesopotamia. But there wasn't really any superpower that wanted it. It was more or less, Canaan was like the highway or the, the Tim Hortons or the Starbucks of the day. It's the place where, where people met. And so when archaeologists are doing work in this area, even up to the time of Abraham, one thing that's startlingly missing is, uh, is inscri are inscriptions. There's, they don't dig up writing. They don't dig up Canaanite writing. They dig up statues and figurines and pottery because people were living in that area. But it, it wasn't really a, a developed culture. It was just a, a, a kind of a sea, a mixing pot of all different kinds of cultures that were living in that area, different people groups. So then we come into the early Bronze Age, which is the um, the period of time, toward the end of that period of time is when, um, when Abraham showed up. Prior to Abraham coming into Canaan, certain areas had become heavily urbanized. So I'll point some of them out to you. And again, I, I wasn't planning on using this map so uh, for this purpose, but so you might not be able to read this very well, but here are some places. This is Jericho. This is Gilgal. That's going to come up again later. Uh, those those areas became uh, heavily urbanized, and also up here, Megiddo. Okay, think Armageddon. This area became heavily uh, urbanized, and uh, Gezer, which is over this way. So here, here. And here, these were, these actually grew into, uh, prior to Abraham ever showing up, walled, fortified cities. But toward the end of the early Bronze Age, which would have been around the time Abraham was coming in, this area and this area had, the basically the traffic had picked up drastically and the people that were living in these areas didn't like the fact that foreigners were basically going through their property all the time. 
and more or less moved out. The population coming into the time when Abraham entered into the land drastically dropped from what it had been before. Because people didn't like, it would have, it would have been very um, insecure. Uh, it would have been very unsecured land to have people traping through your, uh, your backyard all the time, basically. So when you think of Abraham entering into the land of Canaan, you think of an area that's in decline that had previously been great, that had previously been in decline. So it had gone up and down, up and down, up and down before Abraham ever showed up. Now, around the time, as I've mentioned this several times, but we'll stress it again, coming into the, 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 the beginning part of what's called the Middle Bronze Age, the Semites began to pour in, especially the Western Semites, from Mesopotamia down into the land of Canaan and into Egypt. And do you remember why that was happening? There's a couple of reasons. But why were they why were so many people moving into Canaan around the time that Abraham did? What were some key factors? Yep. Yeah, economic opportunities, um, you know, pasture land. Many of them were still very nomadic people. Why else? Why else? I'll bring up another map here. So here we have Galilee, Sea of Galilee. This is Mesopotamia. This is all the Fertile Crescent. Here you have this this mountain range, and out of these mountains started to pour different hostile people groups. And wars started to occur all through this area between the ancient Mesopotamian people groups and especially the Guti. You see that word? There was an, a group called the Guti that came out of the Zagros Mountains that basically were making Mesopotamia increasingly a hostile, a hostile place to live. And so these are the reasons why we think that a lot of these Western Semites began to move down into Canaan, and many of them moved down into uh, the land of Egypt. And one thing that you might find interesting is by the time Abraham arrived in Canaan, we know there was a famine in the land at one point. Remember, he moved south to Egypt. When he went into Egypt, the, some of the Western Semites had established dynasties in the land of Goshen. And so it's possible that the Pharaoh king that um, Sarah and Abraham met, Sarah was temporarily taken into his household, was actually a Semite Egyptian king and not an old school style Egyptian king. And it was during the uh, period of the captivity, several centuries later, that the indigenous Egyptians in and around 1580 under Pharaoh Ambrose were finally able to kick the uh, Western Semite Egyptians out and shoo them off back to Canaan and Mesopotamia. So this may explain the reasons why Abraham was able to have dialogue with the Pharaoh king because the Pharaoh king wasn't an, an Egyptian in the sense of King Tut, but he was actually a kind of a distant cousin of sorts of uh, Abraham. So the, um, what else can I say? Um, 
Okay, I'll just I'll just leave it at that, and then we'll kind of get into our our uh, the discussion that we're supposed to be having tonight. So early Israelite society. <clears throat> so if you read through the book of Genesis, we have we encounter a man by the name of Abraham, and Abraham lived his life probably from in and around the dates 2166 BC to 1991 BC. So if, if you just want to remember it in general, you'd always think of the year 2000 BC. That's Abraham was alive in the year 2000 BC. And we don't meet him until he's 75 years old. He'd already been connect, collecting his pension for a decade. Apparently they had a really good plan back then. So where did he come from? Well, there's two options. Here's the Persian Gulf. I've already told you the Persian Gulf was longer back then. A lot of it's filled in. What's this here? That's Ur. But there's also a place up here that was known as Ur. And historically, most people thought that... Uh, Abraham probably came from this this Ur, but some some historians have argued that that Ur was never known as Ur of the Chaldeans, that it was always the northern Ur. So there's kind of some debate back and forth. So therefore, you have these different lines. So this is what is called um, the south view. So this is Babylon. Remember Sumer, the Sumerians? We talked about that last week, the Akkadians. So he traveled all the way up here and... This little place is called Haran or Haran. The alternative view is that he came from Ur, an Ur in the north and kind of came down to the northwest and ended up in Haran, or at least his, I think it was his dad that uh, took the family there. So this Haran, we know where, pretty much know where that is, but there's a little bit of debate as to which Ur uh, Abraham came from. Nevertheless, he was clearly, ethnically, a Mesopot- what we would call a Mesopotamian. And then we have him leaving Haran and traveling down into this district. Now, who did he take with him? Well, in his company, Sarah is specifically named, and also his nephew Lot Lots of intermarriage was going on still 4,000 years ago. So, you know, Abraham and his wife Sarah shared a parent. So they were half-siblings. Lot was his nephew. Um, Abraham's son Isaac would marry who? Rebecca. Who's Rebecca? Like in terms of genealogy. Yeah, basically his, his cousin, but... You know, there may be some other connections there too, because one of Abraham's brothers married his niece. And then we have uh, Jacob. He goes back and marries basically a cousin. So there's lots of sort of intermingling back in those days. And the text also tells us, if you read Genesis carefully, there's Sarah and Lot and the people they what? Acquired. In Haran. What does that indicate? Okay, some sort of slavery or indentured servitude. Now, 
not to minimize it, but one of the problems we have as North Americans is as soon as we think slavery, we always think of Civil War era slavery in the USA. And there's actually all kinds of different cultural notions about slavery. Sometimes people were captured in battle and were taken into slavery. And sometimes they turned themselves over to someone as a what we would call a slave, but really it's because they can't provide for themselves. So they basically agree to to uh, come into your household and you, you give them room and board and you, you treat them like anybody else, but you'd call them a slave. And um, then there were people who were born like generations of slaves. So it was more like almost a caste system than than the kind of slave you would think of in in uh, in the Civil War era. So there's lots of different ways of thinking about that. Even one of Abraham's slaves was a man by the name of Eleazar of Damascus who was going to do what? Yeah, well he was he got Isaac his wife, but what what was what was his potential inheritance? Everything Abraham owned. So before Abraham had a son, his trusted slave Eliezer of Damascus was the person that was going to inherit all of his estate. And we know, based upon um, the descriptions that are given of Abraham when he comes out of Egypt, that he's an extremely wealthy guy. He's not some pauper. He's traveling probably probably with an entourage. It could be folks a thousand or more people, believe it or not. You might think, really? I'm not picturing that in my head. That wasn't in my Sunday school uh, you know, uh, crayon uh, sheets, you know, when I was in church as a kid. Well, we know later on that when he has to rescue Lot, he, he's, he has 318 uh, men of military age. So presumably there's men not of military age. Presumably each of them has a wife. Presumably they each have like 18 kids. So you're talking about a lot of people and a, a, a guy with a lot of wealth and power, he can defend himself. Uh, Abraham never gets beaten up in the whole Genesis record by anybody. He, he beats some people up, but nobody ever beats him up. So a large entourage, and as he comes down into Canaan, he arrives here. So there's Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. He arrives at a place called Shechem. Now one thing that this shouldn't throw you off but it's important to note this. Just because in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is called Shechem in the Torah, doesn't mean that that place was called Shechem when Abraham was in Shechem. But because the Torah was written several hundred years later for the people of God who were about to enter into the conquest, as the, this information was being given to them, the names that they would now know these places by were written into the Torah. This doesn't mean it's, they're not changing anything, but they're trying to, uh, Moses and Joshua are trying to help the people of God understand their history. And so they say, well, Abraham came to Shechem. But Shechem might not have been named Shechem at the time. It might have inherited that name later on. So the point being is that when we read through the Genesis account and we look at place names and archaeologists say, oh, that's impossible, and 2000 Shechem wasn't called Shechem. Well, we don't really care. 
because it was called Shechem when they were on the plains of Moab about to cross the Jordan, and so that's what they were calling it at the time. And so in order to tell the story, they used the name of the moment. It'd be like nowadays, uh, you might say to me, well, I, I was born and raised in Windsor, but maybe you weren't. You know, maybe you were actually born and raised in Walkerville or Riverside or, you know, part that's been sandwiched south or some part that when you were born wasn't called Windsor, but now you call it Windsor because that's how we all know it. Nevertheless, he comes to Shechem and the first thing he does is builds himself an altar. Keep this in mind. He then moves to the hill country east of Bethel. That's not on this map between Bethel and Ai in this vicinity. And he builds another altar. He must like building altars. So hold on to that thought. Then from there, he moves down to the Nijev. Now this area, I've told you this before, if you just draw a straight line, just roughly speaking, from the coast over to the top of the Dead Sea, most of this to the south is called the Nijev or the Nigev Desert. And he goes down into the Nigev several times. We're not quite sure why he liked to hang out in the Nigev, because the Nigev wasn't as nice of an area as this area up here. But I can give you one potential, uh, one, one potential reason why he spent a lot of time in the Nigev. And that's because it was safe. It was in the middle of these two trade routes we already talked about. They ran from north to south, north to south. If Abraham hung around Jericho, he was putting himself in harm's way because that was a major trade route. He did go to that area occasionally, but he didn't hang out there too much. If he hung out in the nice fertile area along the coastal plains, he'd probably constantly be bumping into different people. And because Abraham was a nomad, basically the equivalent of a modern-day Bedouin, he was moving around all the time. That's why people didn't bother him, because he wasn't setting up fences. He wasn't roping off land. The one exception to that was the piece of property he bought from the Hittite to bury his wife. That's the only piece of land he owns in his entire life. He's moving around. He's a nomad. So even the settlers in that area never bothered him, because you know he's out, he's out in the field, but he'll be gone next month or next spring. No big deal. He's not a threat to us. So I think, and this is just my opinion, that the reason why Abraham probably spent so much time in the Nijev is because it was safe and he was sort of out of harm's way. He wasn't bothering anybody and he had an opportunity to establish himself, build up his men, build up his you know, uh, offspring, build up his wealth and so forth and so on. He is described as very rich in chapter 13, verse 2, and there's no explanation why and there's no explanation as to how. He's just rich, but that's all we know. He then returns, he's traveling around a lot. He then returns back to Bethel and Ai, and the text says there were Canaanites and Perizzites present. So it wants to communicate to the people of God in Moab, there's still lots of non-Jews living in the land of the time of Abraham. So the, the, the narrative progresses, and everything keeps growing, and one day Lot and Abraham are out having uh, some shawarma, and they, uh, they realize that things are just kind of getting a little out of hand. They have too much, so they decide to, to split up. 
And Lot settles, Lot has first dibs, he settles, it says, in the, the Jordan Valley, what we, we call the Transjordan. And uh, Abraham settles uh, near Hebron. Hebron is just south of um, uh, Jerusalem, I think, I don't know, 30, 40 kilometers, something like that, I think it is. And um, he settles in, in that area and began, begins to become friends with other people. So in chapter 14, verse 13, it says that he became the allies of two Amorites. Oh, we already talked about the Amorites. Not the Ammonites. Those would be the descendants of Lot. But the Amorites were another name for one of the large people groups up in this area. Again, that tells us this people group had also come down into Canaan. Because Abraham becomes friends with two Amorites. Then he gets word that his nephew Lot has been taken captive. And he gathers his men. He also asks for his friends to help him. And they chase the enemy kings up into this area. Sorry, right up into this area, which was which is Dan, get Lot back and still chase them all the way up to Damascus. So see Damascus to this area. How far do you think that is? Several hundred kilometers, guaranteed. And it's not all downhill. By foot. So as I've mentioned before, this is quite a journey, and the text just gives us like a verse or two to describe it. Why is that information included in the biblical narrative? You always want to ask yourself the question, why is this information? I mean, the guy was in the land for years, and we just get these little snippets of his life. Why is this information recorded? Well, again, you got to fast forward and think about the original recipients of the written text. Under Joshua, they're in Moab, over in this area, across from Jericho. They're about ready to cross over. They're scared, I would think. And they hear this story, this narrative of their forefather, Abraham, who was like you know 1% the size of their people, beating the tar out of five kings and chasing them all the way to Damascus and then coming back and you know winning the battle. So this information is like a, a hero narrative. It's a polemic against the fear that they would have been experiencing. And it served to remind them of the faithfulness of their God in providing for his people. That's, that's what I think anyway. It's not in the footnotes, but I think that's probably a reasonable explanation. So Abraham now is, for the first time, presented to us in the biblical text as a formidable foe who's able to defend his household from harm. And then he is further blessed by Melchizedek, the righteous king of uh, Jerusalem. He receives a promise at this point from God that God would provide for him a true son rather than allowing Eleazar of Damascus to inherit his estate. And God further defines for the first time 
the boundaries of the land that Abraham's descendants would inherit. Now, you've looked at many maps. You should know by now the boundary lines. There's a line up here, and basically it goes up here, skips around the West Bank, and there's a little sliver and a little bit of stuff up here. But the river of Egypt is down in this area, and the Euphrates is up here. That's a whole lot bigger than modern-day Israel. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land from the river of Egypt, not the Nile, okay? Well before the Nile, around Kadesh Barnea, or Bir Lahai Roy, it's also called, is a river called the river of Egypt, and the Euphrates is way up to the north. So we're talking about a pretty expansive area on both sides of the Jordan River is what God promised to Abraham. This is the time also when God commands Abraham and all of the males in his household to be marked with the mark of circumcision, which they previously had evidently not practiced. So obviously we know it was painful, especially for the grown men to uh, undergo circumcision, but that's what they went through. And circumcision became known as the sign and seal of God's covenant with his people. During this period of time, Lot fathers two sons through an incest, through two incest, drunken incestuous relationships with his daughters. And again, why do we need to know that? Because we have down here the Moabites and up here the Ammonites that would later be formidable foes against the Jews. And the Jews uh, uh, needed to be told that they basically were of bad stock. They were distant cousins, but they were of bad stock. They came about not as a result of God's blessings, as Isaac did, but they came about as a result of foolishness, as a result of a mistake made by two daughters and their father. And uh, in desperation, you probably read the story in the Bible, Lot does not molest or rape his daughters. They go in, get him drunk, and sleep with him of their own initiative to get pregnant. And out of that union are these two enemy nations that come up. So we're given that early on in Genesis, which will become significant later on for uh, the people on the plains of Moab, of all places to hear. Also, uh, we also read that Isaac was born. The date of Isaac's birth would be in and around 2066 BC. During this time, just before this, Abraham had already fathered uh, Ishmael, and Ishmael came about as a result of a union between Hagar, his Egyptian maidservant. So, obviously, the the in in terms of trying to understand who Hagar was, it makes the most sense that during the time that preceded this, when Abraham had gone to Egypt during famine, that's probably when he acquired Hagar and perhaps some other Egyptian slaves. And she was offered to him by his own wife. And um, out of that union, we have Ishmael. Now, one interesting thing to look at in the Bible is the number of children that Abraham had. Because usually when you say, you know, who are Abraham's sons? We say, Isaac and Ishmael, right? 
But um, there's at least, I think, six other men that uh, Abraham fathered. And um, let's go to Genesis then. I think it's chapter 22-ish. Okay. Okay, chapter 25. So uh, Sarah has died. Time has passed. Isaac has already found Rebecca. And then in in chapter 25, so Abraham is a really old guy now. I want you to read this text very carefully because it could mean one of two things. It says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him, and you can count them, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, and then I think the most significant person in the list, Midian. Think Midianites. Ishbak, this is verse 1, and Shua. And then it says, uh, Jokshan fathered Sheba, and it goes on to list all uh, of these names. But then I want you to pay careful attention to Verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. Now this could be read in two different ways. It might mean that while Hagar and Keturah were legitimate wives, that they were thought of as concubines because they were second wives, or it might be saying that in addition to his three legitimate wives, he also had concubines. And if he also had concubines and gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, well, there's sons, that's plural, there's at least two more. So we're not sure. He minimally had eight sons and perhaps more, but only one became the son of promise. Now, you're supposed to remember the Midianites because the Midianites are the people group from which Jethro comes, also known as Ruel who would provide a wife for Moses, who was a God-fearing man. Later, the Midianites would turn nasty and attack the fledgling nation of Israel under Joshua after they'd entered into the Promised Land. So usually they're bad guys, as are many of the sister nations, but in the case of Jethro, they are good guys. So when you read the biblical narrative, pay attention to the names of the various ites that are attacking them. Some of them are their cousins. Ammonites, cousins. Moabites, cousins. Midianites, cousins. So a lot of cousin nations were attacking them, and then also various nations from uh, totally different stock. Okay, uh, Edomites, they're also cousins. So we have them receiving the mark. Uh, Abraham uh, fathers Ishmael, he fathers uh, Isaac. He then travels again, the text tells us, to Beersheba and then to the land of the Philistines. So he's doing a lot of traveling. When you think of Abraham, he's basically zigzagging back and forth from the north to the south, from the east to the west, across this country, 
uh, several times. At one particular juncture, Isaac is almost sacrificed on what we usually call Mount Moriah. But based upon the topography of the land, you can understand why we don't know exactly where Mount Moriah is, because Mount Moriah is more like a bunch of mountains called Moriah. It's a, it's a mountain range, just like Mount Sinai, with a whole bunch of different peaks. And we don't know which peak was the one upon which uh, Isaac was almost sacrificed, nor do we know which peak in the Sinai Peninsula was the one that the Jews knew as Mount Sinai because it's not just one mountain sticking up out of the desert as you might see in paintings. It's a mountain range. And this is why sometimes it's difficult for us to know uh, where these places were. Abraham then in chapter 22 returns to live at Beersheba. And Beersheba is, is a significant place. I actually have a picture of Tel Beersheba Again, I've told you before, the B or the V is interchangeable. So uh, sometimes it's Beersheba, sometimes it's Beersheba. But I want you to notice a few things here. This is the, um, the outline of the tell. And you can see, based upon the slope size, this is quite a ways up in the air. I, I'm just going to take a totally... I've been there. I just can't remember how high it was. But it, it could be like... 20 to 50 feet in the air, something like that. And uh, these are the ruins of like the last settlement. Well, all of these sides are layers and layers of civilization. So back when Abraham came into this area, it was probably just as, as flat as the land around it. But it's been uh, torn down and built up, torn down, build up, torn down, build up, torn down, build up, over and over and over again by various people groups. And because it's now a hump in the land, it's known as a tell. And one of the ways that archaeologists will try to date the tells is you know, by the coinage, if, if it's a later find, whether there's pottery or not, what the markings in the pottery are, um, different religious objects based upon their knowledge of what gods are being worshipped in that vicinity at the time, uh, wells, garbage dumps, all, all sorts of things. It's actually quite fascinating. Uh, they also sometimes find sections of, um, of civilization that were burnt, and they may know of an event where the city was burnt. So lots of different ways of dating these tells. This is Tel Beersheba. And the reason why Abraham went there, it's kind of like out in the middle of nowhere. It might have been slightly more treed at the time, but it's, it's really like being in the desert or in the wilderness. They found a well there. And so because it was a well, they were able to sort of build up a little bit of an oasis. So it, this is in the south, far south from Jerusalem. Abraham returned over and over and over again to Beersheba. And it's basically the most significant city in the uh, Nijev, both in ancient times and the new Beersheba, which is just down the road from it, even in, in modern times. So he goes to Beersheba in chapter 22. Sarah dies at Hebron. And this is the first time in the Bible where it talks about property being bought or exchanged. So he has a dialogue with a bunch of Hittites. The one Hittite says, ah, oh, you can have it. You're a good guy. He's like, no, I want to pay you for it. He says, okay, give me 400 shekels of silver. Gives him 400 shekels of silver. Purchases the land. And um, several of the patriarchs, including Abraham, were later buried there. I, don't, I think it was either Rachel or Rebecca that weren't, but basically the rest of them were, were buried there. And um, the reason why this piece of information is probably given to us is 
we got altars being built, another altar being built, another altar being built, land being purchased. So Yahweh God, who had promised the land, is being worshipped in different spots. It's being physically marked out with altars, probably look something like this, that were built. Land is being purchased. A family plot, so to speak, is being developed. What what this is doing is it's creating within the mind of the Jewish people, God has is stamping out this land for us. It's increasingly becoming ours. His mark is upon it. And this is important for you to understand because this, these ancient events of building altars and buying land to bury patriarchs is still in the psyche of the Israeli people today that this land is ours. It's being, it has been marked out for millennia by our forefathers. So these are details in the text you might sort of just read over, but they're actually very important to try to understand the worldview and the mindset of modern-day Jews. Today, by the way, a mosque stands at um, the site of uh, Sarah's tomb, and it's been a Christian church, it's been a mosque, it's been a synagogue, and for several, I think 700 or 1,000 years or something like that, Jews weren't, weren't allowed in it until the 1967 war um, when they took back that area. So then we have, um, back to our original map here, we have Abraham hanging out in Beersheba. And right here, this says Beer Lahai Roy. This is also known as Kadesh Barnea. It's well, it's kind of within that vicinity. The text, the biblical text tells us that Isaac was in this area when Eliezer of Damascus was sent all the way up here to get Rebekah and all the way back. And this is where they met and married. And uh, this is an important site because... Kadesh Barnea would come up over and over and over again as a place where the Jews would stop during their wanderings in the Sinai Desert. They wandered all over the place, but this was sort of like um, their headquarters or their uh, you know, place of uh, operations. They would always come back to Kadesh Barnea. In fact, it was from Kadesh Barnea after the Exodus that they should have been able to push an assault into Canaan, but they weren't strong enough, so they had to skirt around and come in from the Jordan Riverside. Abraham dies, Isaac settles at Kadesh Barnea. This is the place from which Jewish spies were sent. Uh, it was the place where Moses struck the rock and was an angered God. It was a place where Miriam and Aaron, close to this area is where they would die. And it's also considered sort of the southernmost boundary of the land that God had promised to the Jews. Okay? So um, with regard to the altar, let me just throw out some references for you. You can write these down. Chapter 12, verse 7 of Genesis. Uh, chapter 8 and chapter 13, verse 18. These are all situations where he builds an altar. And I'll give you four reasons why I think he was doing it. First, to honor Yahweh. That's the immediate most obvious. Second, to acknowledge Yahweh's presence in that land during a day and age when people thought of gods as being regionalized. This is key. If Abraham met Yahweh up here, some of his household 
as they moved down into Canaan, might have thought, well, yeah, we believe in Yahweh, but he's a Mesopotamian God. He doesn't live down here. So I know this sounds kind of weird, but they thought of gods regionally. So Abraham is probably building the altars to communicate to his people, to his servants. No, Yahweh lives in this land too. That's the second reason. Third, to lay claim to the land as a spiritual possession. And fourth, to acknowledge the presence of Abraham there for future generations to come. So that basically brings us to the end of Abraham's life. And then Isaac, we've already touched on him, born about 2066. We're going to sort of look at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph together. Famine drives Isaac to Gerar of the Philistines, where he settles in verse 26. So kind of on the east coast uh, is where the, um, sorry, the west coast is where the Egyptians, uh, sorry, the Philistines lived in the area of Gaza. Isaac settles there. Like his father, he sort of befriends the king, but the king starts to get a little nervous because he realizes Isaac is actually stronger militarily and in terms of his household than him. So he asks him to leave. Isaac then leaves the land of the Philistines and moves back to Beersheba where his father had gone many times. During this period of time, uh, of course, uh, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now Esau, even though he's the firstborn, becomes sort of the, 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 the bad guy, you might say. He makes a series of fumbles. He sells his, uh, his birthright and he marries two Hittite women. And the biblical text tells us that in marrying two Hittite women, he became a stench to his mother and his father. It caused family feuds, in other words. So he's then marked off early in the text as the antithesis to the son of promise. Now the son of promise, who is Jacob, also has all kinds of flaws. He's, you know, he's a mama's boy. He's kind of a wimp. He's kind of effeminate. He's a, he's sneaky. But he is marked out as the son of promise. And because of his feud with his brother Esau, he takes off. And he moves from this area all the way back up to the area of Haran, to Ur of the Chaldean, Chaldean, uh, sorry, to the place where his ancestors had come from Ur of the Chaldees. And how many years does Jacob spend there? 20 years. So it's a long time. And during that period of time, he now grows into a bit of a patriarch. He sort of creates his own standing. So he comes back with four ladies in tow. Two of them are his sister wives. Kind of it was like an early Mormon kind of thing going on. And uh, two of them are the maidservants of his, his wives. And he has all kinds of kids at this point, And he's still a little bit concerned about his brother, uh, Esau, but he meets his brother Esau probably up in this area or maybe even down in this area in Edom in the land of Seir, the text tells us, and he reconciles. He then wrestles with God at a place called Penel and um, Jacob's sons sort of start to rise up now. We're introduced to them and they begin to sort of flex their muscles. And one of the things they do is they wage war against a city within which a man by the name of Shechem lives because Shechem had taken their daughter Dinah, fallen in love with her, obviously had sexual intercourse with her before they were married. They believe that was a disgrace. 
So they create this plot. They convince all these guys, hey, if you want to join us, we only have one stipulation. You've got to be circumcised. They're like, okay, let's get circumcised. And they're thinking to themselves, if we get circumcised and our people merge with, with Jacob's people, we can take them over because we're, uh, we're more populated and we're going to get all their daughters now and all their wealth. But uh, these guys all get circumcised foolishly on the same day. And as they're writhing in their homes in pain, two of Jacob's sons go in and kill them all. They can't defend themselves. Now, Jacob is very disturbed by this because he's still a nomad. He doesn't want to create a stench in the land, so he rebukes them. But nevertheless, what this text, again, functions to present us with is uh, that this fledgling people group is growing in military power it can defend itself and it stands for morality so we now we have generations abraham can do it isaac can do it jacob can do it jacob's boys can do it again this is functioning i think as a polemic to the people that they're they're getting stronger so jacob then leaves bethel rachel dies near bethlehem uh is buried there and he is reunited with his father Isaac at Hebron. Shortly thereafter, Isaac dies. And then the story just kind of goes crazy. All these sons are mad at Joseph, the second from last born. They sell him into slavery. And who are the slave traders in the biblical text that take him to Egypt? They're Midianites. So they're like third cousins or something, literally, that are taking this guy to um, to Egypt. And little do the Jewish people know, but at this point, the fact that their brother has been sold into slavery foreshadows the fate of the future nation as a whole. So the people then, uh, decades, decades go by, the people of Israel migrate to Egypt to avoid famine, and they're protected by Joseph. So they only spent four generations in Canaan. Now they're going to spend four centuries in Egypt before they ever set foot back in the land of Canaan. And so that brings us to the, the end of the period of the patriarchs. Here are some different key places that Abraham lived or visited in the promised land. We have Shechem, we have Bethel, Ai, um, Salem, which is an old name for... Well, no, that's... I mean... Yeah, that's an old, it's probably the same area, but Salem is short for Jerusalem. And some people think Jerusalem was also known as Mount Moriah, that the place where Isaac was taken was also Jerusalem. We don't know that for sure, probably in that vicinity. We have Hebron, later in history, David would be crowned king there, uh, Gerar in the land of the Philistines, and Beersheba in the south. So those are some key places that, that he visited. And so now we have, uh, we're fast forwarding to the period between 1946 and 1446. This now is in the middle of what archaeologists would call the Middle Bronze Era, which ran from roughly 1950 BC to 1550 BC, the Middle Bronze Era. And during this period of time, as the nation of Israel now is down in Egypt, Canaan springs back to life. 
and goes through a period of prosperity. So in the central mountain range down the center of the country, several prominent cities that Abraham would have perhaps been to, they maybe would have been towns or villages at the time, grow and become fortified. So you can write down Shechem and Bethel and Hebron. These places grow in their military, cultural, and economic might. The Canaanites grow. The population of the Canaanites rapidly expands. There's a lot more graves that archaeologists find during this period than the one just before to the one just after it. And so as the Israelis are down in Egypt growing in number, guess what? The Canaanites are also growing in number to the north. After 400 years of abuse, Moses is born. And in and around 1446 B.C., after he himself had left and spent 40 years in the land of Midian, he returns and leads his people out of the land of Egypt. People have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the route was that they took and where they crossed uh, what is known in the Hebrew as the Yom Suf. All the Hebrew text tells us is they crossed the Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. Now, a reed and red are not the same word. But it's interesting that um, because people don't read the text very well, a lot of people hear Reed Sea, but they think Red Sea, or translators translate Red Sea, but it's actually Reed Sea. So here, of course, is the Red Sea. We'll just orient ourselves. This is Egypt. This area here is the land of Goshen. This would be the Nile River. This is the land of Goshen. So the Israelis have to somehow get from here to here. Well, it's possible that they came down here, and maybe at the time the thing that we now know is the Red Sea was you know, what they crossed. And obviously it makes for a better story if they're crossing, you know, a hundred foot deep lake. But in reality, they probably crossed up here through a reedy lagoon. That probably wasn't that deep. I mean, it might've been 20 feet deep or something like that. And so chances are they would have come out of Goshen through this era. They're, they do not exist now because the topography of the land has changed with drainage and uh, canals and whatnot. But in this area, uh, there were several ancient reedy lagoons that existed. And they would have been impossible to cross, of course, without God's help. But I'm just trying to create maybe an alternative image in your mind that it might not have been that they came up to some you know, ocean, but it might have been some deep, swampy, reedy area, and God parted that sea and allowed them to cross into um, the Sinai Peninsula. So this whole area here that hangs down is known collectively as the Sinai Peninsula. Up in this area... Okay, right there, that's Kadesh Barnea, which we've already discussed many times. So they, Kadesh Barnea, Bir Lahai Roy, comes up time and time again. They end up there over and over again. So some people think that they basically just spent all their time in the northern part of this peninsula. 
you'll see down here this little legend, from there to there is 100 kilometers. So about a little bit longer than this pointer. So one, two, maybe just over 200 kilometers or so to Kadesh Barnea. But, you know, this, this shouldn't have taken them very long to get up into Canaan because Abraham had come down here and back. Isaac had come down and gone back. Not a big deal. Joseph had been transported down there and was still a young man when he arrived in Egypt. But they end up spending 40 years in this area. And if you kind of calculate it out, you're probably talking somewhere around you know, an 800 to 1,000 kilometer periphery to the Sinai Peninsula. But this is where they spend the next 40 years. Some people think Mount Sinai might be down in this area. It's probably true. We don't know for sure. They're here, and then on occasion they cross over into this area, the land of uh, Edom, and kind of come up maybe as far as the top of the Dead Sea. But that's where they spend two uh, generations. And um, during this time, God grows them. They build a tabernacle. They um, also venture out into different battles. At one point, they battle the, uh, the Moabites. And now they basically are a, a giant nomadic nation that's on the move. And in and around 1406 BC, up in this area, in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, Moses dies. And so when you're trying to think to yourself, where is it that they would have first opened up Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? It would have been obviously after Moses died because Moses' death is recorded in it. Most of it was written by Moses. Probably the, the ending was written by Joshua. And it would have been when they were up in this area after Moses' death, waiting for orders to cross and attack. So they received God's law at that point in time. And this, is, this probably would have been the first time then that they had in their, well, it would have been the first time they had in their hands the written word of God. It's possible that the book of Job was written earlier whether they had that in their possession or not, we don't know. But that's when they would have received the Torah law. And it would have been read to them. Obviously, it would have taken them quite a long time to read through it and familiarize themselves with it. And that is what galvanized them to, to cross over and attack the Canaanites. They saw God's hand of faithfulness upon them. They read about God's laws and uh, God's promises. And they were ready to go. So... A secularist would say it functioned as propaganda. But through the eyes of faith, we would say it, it functioned as a reminder of God's promises and God's presence and God's blessings and God's laws and rules so they could cross and be as successful as they could. Okay? So that brings us to the end of the, uh, the Exodus period and sets us up for the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. So let's just take a 10-minute break or so and then we'll talk about some of the uh, interesting events that take place during the conquest. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about Joshua's conquest of the land and the subsequent gains that they made. Now this map actually is has pretty good resolution, but there's so many words on it, you 
you probably won't see it unless you have really good eyes or you're close to the front. So, um, so here they are. So this is Moab. See Moab here? These are known as the plains of Moab. There's Ammon. That's the Ammonites. So Ammon and Moab are the sons of uh, Lot. And the Jews have uh, made their way up here. Couple things that take place before they cross the uh, land. From an ancient place called Shittim, they send in spies to spy out Jericho. And you all know about Rahab. So that takes place there. We've already mentioned they uh, would have received the, the Torah law in that location. And then they cross over the Jordan to Gilgal. And does anybody know what they do at Gilgal, which is very important? At Gilgal, they celebrate the Passover. Or more accurately, they, they like renew their celebration of the Passover. Implication is maybe they'd sort of forgot about it a little bit when they were in the Sinai. And they'd fallen behind it a little bit on circumcision. So they reinitiate the rite of circumcision at Gilgal. And they do these things obviously out of recognition for God's supremacy over their lives. They want to mark off the key event of deliverance, the Passover, and they want to reinstitute the sign and symbol of the covenant. That's what they do at Gilgal. Before anybody swings the sword, this takes place. Then they attack Jericho, and that's probably the most famous one. It comes at the beginning where they wander, they stomp around the walls, and the walls come crashing down. You probably all sang that story if you went to Sunday school in an evangelical church in Canada. And uh, from there, then, they move to the, uh, to the west, and they capture Ai. Now notice Bethel and Ai. Do you remember those? Twice at least twice, Abraham camped between Bethel and Ai, and he built an altar there. So many of these key places that had already been stamped with God's mark, so to speak, became part of the journey of Joshua to capture the land from the godless Canaanites. Then they, um, while there's sort of some different ways of sort of slicing this and dicing this. In the biblical text, the next place they go is to um, to Shechem. And there's a mount there called Mount Ebal. And Joshua, on Joshua chapter 8, builds an altar there to God. Again, marking off the land for God and worshiping God. Several other places are captured. Um, they capture Lake Lachish. Eglon, uh, Hebron. Okay, here's Hebron here. There's Lachish. There's Ekron or Eg uh, Eglon. I think that's the same place, just with a different spelling, I think. And then they, when they capture these places, one of two things happens. Or it was probably about one of three things that happens. Um, the most severe of which is called a harim. 
H-E-R-E-M in English. Sometimes this word will come up in the Old Testament as a ban, B-A-N. Or it'll say they devoted it to destruction. Now this is a very important word. I had read about this a lot. I'd seen this come up in the text as a child and a teenager, but I actually did a paper on this in a Hebrew class in seminary. And I was kind of surprised at how significant this word was for them, the harem or the ban. Where, and, and this is where like our, we have to sort of set aside our culture and try to enter into their mindset. In a, in a period of time where the blessings of God or the gods, depending on your persuasion, were measurable. What were they measurable by? Okay, fertility, we've already touched on that one. What else? Wealth, sorry? Yep, sheep, grain, goats, flocks, tangible stuff. They conceived of God's blessings in this way. And of course, God obviously accommodated that by blessing Abraham and telling him he was going to bless, bless him in this way. So this is why it was very important for their name to be. This explains why having sons was important and their name not being wiped out and fortifying their cities and all this kind of stuff. Now, these places that they were capturing were also Semite people, and they would have had similar mindsets. So when you capture Jericho, as the Jews would look at those walls, those walls were a testament to the gods of the people that lived inside of them. They proclaimed the might and power of those gods. So they had to come down. You might think, well, that doesn't make much sense. Like, if you're going to attack a and it doesn't from a human perspective, why would you kill everybody off and then bust all their houses down? Why wouldn't you just start living in their houses? Why wouldn't you just take advantage of their walls? Why wouldn't you you know, take their sheep and their oxen for your own? Sometimes God permitted them to do that, to expand their wealth, but oftentimes you had to devote it to destruction. You had to put it under a harem or a ban. And everything had to come down. So you don't just run in and four or five hours wipe everybody out you're there probably for weeks with like crowbars and pickaxes trying to knock down these you know eight foot wide who knows how tall walls and break it all down as a sign that you have not only conquered the people but you've conquered their god and other nations had the same mindset so if they would conquer a, an israeli town later on they would also break it down because that was a testament to yahweh's strength and this is why you have layer after layer after layer after layer of civilization being built up. Because it, these were considered holy wars. Okay? Muslims did not concoct the concept of jihad. This goes way back into Canaanite times. Holy war. War was fought for more than political economic reasons. It was fought to advance your understanding of God. And of course we believe that they were advancing the understanding of the true God. Joshua and his army then go to the north, and this is Hazor. If you don't know any other towns in Israel, here are the ones you should know. Hazor, uh, Bet-Shion, Jericho, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Beersheba. Those are the biggies. Those are the ones that have been around like forever. 
Hazor is the most significant city in the north, one of the most ancient cities. So Hazor, I should add Megiddo to the list. Hazor, Megiddo, Jerusalem, and Jericho, top four. Definitely the oldest, Jericho being the oldest by far. So they go all the way up to Hazor, and they attack uh, Hazor. And I'm telling you, this is like, this is like... uh, you know, a bunch of guys from Essex attacking Montreal and winning. I mean, this is this is like huge. I mean, the text doesn't give you all those details, but Hazor was like a significant fortress and a significant place of commerce. And it, Hazor, the name Hazor, I already told you this a couple of weeks ago, was found in Mesopotamian texts where they would talk about trade relationships. So this is a significant epicenter. And amazingly, this fledgling nation is able to take Hazor. And now, if, if I just use it, my little laser pointer, this area has been taken, this area has been taken, and then more or less most of this area. So by the end of Joshua's life, he hasn't done much along the coast. He hasn't done much over here. But this center section, this the tough mountainous section, more or less is under Israeli control by the end of uh, Joshua's life. Now, the text tells us, the biblical text tells us that some of the Canaanites could not be taken and they were assimilated. So there was assimilation taking place between the ancient Canaanites and the Jews. And during the, the tail end of this period of time, the temple, the tabernacle, which had been temporarily set up at Gilgal, where they celebrated the Passover and reinstituted circumcision, was moved to Shiloh. And Shiloh would become, even later on, sort of like a competing place of worship when the tribes were split. But they go from Jericho to Shiloh. They're not yet, they haven't yet taken uh, Jerusalem, but uh, they have taken a significant amount of land. This map I showed you a few weeks ago, this is more or less the breakdown of how it all turned out. The, the conquering of the land happened, uh, the main part of the land ha- happened very quickly, just in the second half of Joshua's lifetime. And then it was several generations, several centuries for them to fully sort of occupy and stake out and acquire the land. This is the land breakdown at the time of the conquest that was divvied up. Even though, if they, even if they hadn't taken it yet, they sort of knew, you know, more or less, these are our boundaries. Now, this obviously changes later when the kingdom is broken up, because everybody knows Dan isn't here. I already told you, Dan's up here. In fact, earlier, when and this is an example of place names. Remember when Abraham chased the kings north to get Lot? It says he went as far as Dan. Well, Dan hadn't even been born yet. And then went to Damascus and back. So it's it's giving the name that the people would have known at the time was going to be theirs, or may even have been updated later, you know, to keep the geography relevant. Dan was eventually moved up here. But this is more or less the breakdown of the land on both sides of the Jordan River uh, at the time of the conquest. And depending on the topography, depending on you know how close you were to water, depending on how many people you had, 
you were sort of given various allotments. So you, you shouldn't just say, well, man, Judah got an awful lot. Yeah, they got like a lot of desert. So they got a lot. This part's like the prime area. This area is not really that great. I mean, you'd probably want 100, 100 acres here rather than 100 acres here, right? So they sort of divvied it up that way, and they begin to settle the land. And now this takes us into the period of the judges. And this is one of the most wonky periods in Israeli history, where everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So the period of the judges spans 1400 to 1050. 1400 is a rough date, but 1050 is locked down because in 1050, Saul was appointed as their first king. And that brought to an end the period of the judges. Now this I don't want to just talk about. I want to point you to the biblical text and uh, give you some understanding of the, uh, the period of the judges and why it was a turbulent, topsy-turvy time. Just before I do that, I'll just give you a few background uh, uh, pieces of background information. The period of the judges has historically been dated from the death of Joshua until the replacement of Samuel as the spiritual leader of Israel to Saul under the first monarchy in 1050 BC. I, I do, by the way, want to say this. I think, based upon my study, that the date of the Exodus can be locked down to in and around 1446 or 1447 BC. But there, there are many other people that think it happened in the 1200s. And you know, we shouldn't be too dismissive of that, or um, you know, we don't want to we don't want to hold to our dates so tightly that we assume well, if you don't hold to the exact same dates that we do that somehow um, you know you're you're a heretic and one of the reasons why some people prefer a, um, a, a an earlier or a later date for the exodus is based upon passages like galatians chapter 3 verse 17 and Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, I mean, you sort of wonder, like, I'm not sure exactly what he's saying. I think I know what he's saying, but he might be saying something different. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So just very, very quickly, some people think that it, the Jews were not in Israel for 400 years but that the 400 years or 430 years includes the time from when Abraham received the promise to the Exodus, which would obviously crunch things together by 100 or 200 years, right? And if that's the case, you'd have to move the date of the Exodus. So that may, he might be talking about the promise renewed later. He might be talking about the first promise given to Abraham. We're not exactly sure, but that's why some of these dates are a little bit up for grabs, but I'm just kind of giving you the, the traditional dates. So if if um, Joshua was living in the 1400s, then uh, the period of the judges would be from 1400 till 1050, or it could be a little earlier or a little later, but it did end in 1050 with the appointment of Saul as king. This was characterized by the following thing, and I'll give you uh, five points. 
attempts by tribes to conquer territory, some of which were successful, some of which were not. So if you read through the period of Judges, there's lots of little skirmishes taking place. Sometimes they're trying to push out a Canaanite people, and it works, and sometimes it doesn't. There were also, interestingly, attempts to reconquer areas taken by Joshua that must not have been fully occupied. So one of the battles that the people fight during the period of the Judges is against the king of Hazor. Well, Joshua took Hazor. So what's their, why'd they leave the king there? Well, they're taking land so fast, they probably didn't have time to resettle and rebuild. They're wiping a lot of these cities out. So they basically go and wipe them out. They take off and, you know, a guy sneaks out of the bushes and, you know, he's, he's fertile. And before long, there's a whole tribe there again. So they, they're not only are taking new territory, but they're also trying to reconquer territory that had been previously taken under Joshua. Uh, also, sadly, during this time, there's widespread desertion of Yahweh worship by uh, some of the people in favor of worshiping foreign deities. Why? Because they were intermingling and intermixing with the Canaanites that remained in the land. So there's high places that are built up and Baal worship that takes place. And the biblical text time and time and time and time again tells us that the people did what each man saw was fit in his own eyes. So this speaks to the fact there's no political hierarchy, there's no centralized place of worship, and there's no accountability. These things were missing from their human structures, and so everybody sort of did their own thing. So what would happen then is... The people would be going along, everything would be fine, and then they would be attacked. So the first major group that attacked them was the Moabites, and they subjugated them. And then God would raise up what was known as a judge. Don't think of a guy with a you know, black and white robe sitting at a bench in our courts, but this was the name of like the temporary ruler or deliverer. He would raise up a judge, and the people would be delivered, and then the cycle would continue, and then the cycle would continue, and around and around and around we go. So the major enemies they had, first it was Moab, then the king of Hazor attacked, then the Midianites swept in from the south, then the Amalekites swept in, then the Ammonites, the brothers of the Moabites, swept in, and then all of these people are coming in from Hazor is coming down from the north. All these other guys are coming in from across the Jordan. But then they got the Philistines over here. And they're also sending in their own little raiding parties. So times are changing. Sometimes they were getting along with the Philistines. They're going down and they were Philistines were advanced in terms of metallurgy. So they'd be making their weapons for them or sharpening their plowshares and whatnot. Other times they're fighting with them. And in the midst of this, God raises up uh, several judges. Now... Uh, the kings of later Judah and Israel were flawed individuals. Some of them had more flaws than strengths. Some of them had more strengths than flaws. Some of them are sort of just evil. Some of them are really good. But the judges are just weird. They're unlike the kings. And they're weird sometimes because of their physical characteristics, sometimes because of their gender, sometimes because of the methods that they employ. And that's 
we're told that those details on purpose to set us up for the kingship out of which the messianic king would come and so forth. So let's look at some of these people. If you've never read the book of Judges before, it is fascinating. So um, we'll just we'll touch down on uh, on six of these these people, and we'll start with Judges chapter two. So is uh, Israel's disobedience, that's the heading at the beginning of chapter 2, then Joshua dies, Israel's unfaithful. And then here's what God does, starting with verse 16 of chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. So they actually use a sexual term, term to euphemistically, obviously, to capture the, the idolatry that was rampant among the people. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and they, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Now, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, so that introduces the fact this is going to be cyclical, a, a series of ups and downs. It's going to happen over and over again. The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back or were more corrupt than their fathers, going after the gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop the practices of their stubborn ways. So you don't, even though God raised up the judges, you need to understand they're still topsy-turvy. It's a topsy-turvy time. They're strange people. You don't want to look at the judges and say, you know, these judges are are examples of the way it should be. That would be to misread. But it's the way it was. God was using them, that's true. But their character, characteristics and qualities were not necessarily the ones you would want to look for in church leadership today. Or that the Israelites would even look for under the monarchy. So who were some of these people? Well, first of all, we meet Ehud, the lefty. Well, he's not the first judge, but he's the first really interesting one. So the short story here, and this is in chapter 3, is that they were <clears throat> being attacked, and many of you have heard this, it's kind of a grotesque story, by the king of Moab, whose name is Eglon. Now, this is not intentional in the Hebrew, but it's funny in English. You know, He's, he's described as really, really obese, and his name is Eglon. Okay? Eglon, right? He just sounds big. And um, the people of Israel serve this king for 18 years, almost a generation. So they cry out to God in verse 15. And the, the judges, by the way, come from all different tribes. This guy happens to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And he's left-handed. This is odd. How many lefties in the room? To raise your right hand. Okay. About five. How many righties? Raise your left hand. Okay. So most of us are right hand, right? So left handedness was not the norm. So most people would fight with the right hand. But the point is, he goes in to meet this king. He, he makes a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, which I think is, there's actually different ways of measuring the cubit, but I just always think of 18 inches. So it's about a foot and a half. And in verse 17, Eglon was very fat, it says. So he basically runs him through. The sword comes out his back. The text is gross. As his dung came out. His servants were outside, thought he was going to the bathroom. Uh, 
Ehud escapes out the back and the people are saved. And 10,000 of the Moabites um, are killed. And then in verse 30, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was laid to rest. The next guy is Shamgar and he just gets like a sentence. But what's interesting about him is he's kind of like Samson before there's Samson. He kills 600 guys. Now, some of you know the American Sniper movie that's come out. And this guy's credited with 160 kills. Figure that he's actually killed like 255 or 260 people. But he's got a really big gun. Okay, This guy kills 600 people with an ox goad, which is a stick with a poke on the end to push your ox along. Like This guy is like the, the real American sniper. I mean, this guy's the real deal, right? So this is, this is pretty interesting. And then we have Deborah. Now, feminists love to use Deborah's leadership as proof that women can pastor churches and lead. But this is the period of the judges. Everything's topsy-turvy. And nevertheless, in a, in a day and age where everything's topsy-turvy, Deborah stands alone as a prophetess of God. God raises her up. And uh, when everyone else is running the other way, she delivers the people of God from Barak. And uh, the exception to the rule of female leadership actually backs up the rule because she is an exception and an exceptional woman who does a great job in a topsy-turvy period of time. So we have Shamgar, then we have Deborah, then we have Gideon, and he gets quite a few chapters. Now the thing that makes Gideon kind of cool is he's, he's a little more normal than the rest, but he tests God. And what he does is he puts out a fleece. And he's basically trying to figure out what side of the fleece the dew is going to be on in the morning, and if it's on the wrong side, then God sent him. And, and unfortunately, a lot of Christians still kind of treat God that way, where they, they, like, they test God. Well, you know, God, if I wake up in the morning and there's, you know, frost on the window in the middle of July, I'll go to Africa as a missionary, but if there's not, I'm not going. And we we play these little games with God, but and and we try to back it up with guys like Gideon, but Gideon is is also uh doing things that we're not supposed to do. He's he's not supposed to be a standard for leadership. But nevertheless, through unusual circumstances in spite of his weaknesses and his oddities, God nevertheless uses him to overcome their oppressors. And then in chapter 11, we encounter a guy that's really weird and kind of, you don't even really like the guy because of what he does. Uh, Jephthah was a Gileadite. He was a mighty warrior, but he was also the son of a prostitute. So, you know, his, his, his family history was a little skewed. And um, so Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him two sons. He grows up and uh, he drove uh, Jephthah away and said, you shall, not give an you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. So he, he flees, he goes to the land of Tob. It says he hangs around with some uh, worthless fellows. So he forms his own little chain gang. But the Ammonites make war against Israel. So basically, if you just sort of read through the text, he um, kind of comes back, reasserts himself, and in verse 29, he makes a ridiculous vow to God. And again, this, his example is not supposed to be your example. But the vow he makes to God is, 
Uh, if, this is verse 30, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Well, his daughter comes out. And so he has to fulfill his, his vow to God. Now, in verse, there's actually a lot of debate as to whether he actually offered her up as a sacrifice, or whether the text would allow for something to the effect of he sends her off to live in the mountains, or she has to remain a virgin all her life, or she has to be locked up. There's actually different, this is a favorite uh, text that all Bible college professors give to first-year Bible college students to show them they know nothing. And... Um, because you sort of wrestle with, you know, this is God that raised him up. Why would God allow this? But nevertheless, she goes off for two and a half months, weeps for her virginity with her companions. And then in verse 39, at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to, to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite 40 years. So he might have offered up as a burnt sacrifice, as the pagans did, or he may have, she had to swear to perpetual virginity. We, we don't really know. But it's weird. But that's not normal. And then we have one of the most famous uh, judges, Samson. And I mean, you, guys like Samson, but he, he's really not a nice guy. He's a spaz. Um, you know, he's a hulk of a man. But, you know, he's a ladies' man. He, you know, he's running off to the Philistines and marrying and sleeping with women in contradiction to God's written law. They already had the law at this point. He's violating God's law and doing that. He disobeys God. But the basic rundown of Samson is he's like really tough. He, you know, massacres all kinds of Philistines, which were, generally speaking, much larger than the Jewish people. But he's tougher than all of them. He slaughters them with the jawbone of a donkey at one point. He, you know, he, he runs off and slaughters a whole bunch of them and brings back like baskets full of Philistine foreskins, which is just kind of a, a gross image. He ties foxes' tails together and sets them on fire and sends them to the cornfields. So, you know, Greenpeace activists will get upset. And he's just not a nice guy. But he does rescue the people of uh, Israel. But at the end of the day, he, he's captured, his his eyes are are taken out, and he's set to probably a, a big mill wheel grinding grain. Now, I will say this, I don't know if this is true or not, but some people think that because of the size of the Philistines, that grinding at the mill is actually a euphemism for using him for breeding purposes, so that he, he became like a stud. And that they used him to impregnate various women so they could kind of increase the size of their soldiers. I don't know if that's true or not. But at the end of the day, he um, is put in a temple and he pushes down the pillars and it collapses and all the Philistine lords are, are dead. And Israel lives to uh, disobey God another day, so to speak, right? And then sort of the final big event is not so much of a person, but it sort of brings everything to a head where there's this very um, despicable act. So in chapter uh, 17, uh, there is 
uh, a man in the hill country of Ephraim, and he he has a shrine, so he's not worshiping the right gods. There's there's household gods that are mentioned in verse five, and he ordains one of his sons to become a priest. Well, we're already told the guy is not a Levite, so this is an illegitimate king, but he's sort of doing his own thing. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and um. He ordains, then a priest comes by, and basically he convinces this Levite priest. So now he's from the, the right tribe, but he's he's being a priest for the wrong God to come in and be his uh, household priest. And things just kind of go from bad to worse. There's godlessness. Um, the Again, in verse 19, chapter 19, Israel has no king. There's a Levite out traveling again. He takes a concubine. She's basically raped. She's cut up. Her body's sent all over Israel. Everybody freaks out because of this hideous act. Comes down and decides to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. Is almost successful. But then they feel bad for Benjamin. So they go and steal a bunch of the daughters from another tribe and give them to him and then try to pacify the fathers of the daughters they've stolen that everything's cool. It's just weird, okay? It's the book of Judges is not, uh, you know, the place you're going to hear me preaching from when it comes to the nuts and bolts of church life, okay? Uh, it's weird, it's wrong, and at the end of the book it says, "In those days there was no king in Israel; everybody, everyone did what was right in his own eyes." And that basically brings us almost to the end of the period of the judges is a few other things that take place in there, but that brings us to the end of the period of the judges where Israel does not yet have a king. Everybody's doing their own thing. Every once in a while, there's a bit of a bright light, but things are basically a mess. And while the kingship wasn't God's original intention, next week we'll talk about the kingship and also some of the the traits of the kings and also the events that led to the divided kingdom of Israel, dividing it into the north and to the south. Okay, so um, we have a few minutes. Any questions that you would like to ask about the material that we've covered tonight or anything in previous weeks? You're all good? Glenn? Mm. You know, even when the Glenn's question was, was the place of the judges supposed to sort of be in place of a king because God was supposed to be the king? And the straight answer to that is yes. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy, meaning that God was head of state, head of the family, head of worship, head of military, head of everything. And if everybody could just focus on God and allow God to rule, things were going to be good. But uh, human beings don't do so well with invisible rulers. So the fact that they didn't have someone to sort of look to, to touch, to hear directly from caused problems. They were also disobedient and sinful. So God reluctantly allowed them to put the kingship in place. But the kingship we know was wrought with problems anyway. But what the kingship 
looking back at it through New Testament eyes, the, the benefits of the kingship is that that concept of kingship creates within the New Testament believer an understanding of kingdom, an understanding of king, and in particular, the, the need for a messianic ruler out of a line of David. So God redeems the the uh, the kingship even to help us to understand realities of the spiritual kingdom. But, yeah, God was supposed to be the the ruler of of God's people. Yeah. So was it God appointing the judges? Yeah, God was appointing the judges. So this is an interesting point in theology, and the language we could use is that uh, we could talk oftentimes in the Bible about what I would call a theology of accommodation. Sometimes God does things that aren't ideal. They're not, in some ways, what he would want uh, if everything was exactly in line with his moral plan. But he nevertheless allows or permits some things for certain periods of time to accommodate graciously the stupidity, the weaknesses, the ignorance of his people. And so when we read the Bible uh, and we see God allowing or doing or sanctioning certain things, doesn't, that doesn't mean that those things are necessarily in the center of God's moral will. They're always in the center of his sovereign will, obviously, because his sovereign will is about what he actually does. But in the center of his moral will, um, history does not always line up with the center of God's moral will. And we could give numerous illustrations of that. Polygamy was permitted in a society to accommodate it, but it was not part of his moral will as per Genesis. The kingship of Israel, God allowed it, he accommodated it, accommodated them because of their weakness, but he's very clear, it's not really what I want. I think you're making a bad decision. I'd rather just be your king myself. Uh, Even in the New Testament, God desires that everybody would come to know him. That's his moral will, that all people would be in heaven. But the reality is it's not going to happen because in his sovereign will, he disallows it. So, again, when you read the Bible, you need to be very careful in saying, well, God did it, therefore I should do it. Or God did it, therefore it's morally right. Sometimes God allows or permits or accommodates our own ignorances, our own foolishness, uh, based upon his grace in order to be patient with us until something better can come. Yeah. So yes, he did appoint the judges, but it wasn't plan A. Nor was the kingship. Any other questions? Okay, well, have a good evening. We'll see you next week.